we're looking at verse 13 of Romans 12, and particularly Paul's command there that we contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, last time we reminded ourselves of some of the Bible's teaching about money. Uh, we saw that everything that we have comes from God. And we should look to God both in thanksgiving and for direction and how to use what he has entrusted to us. Uh, we saw that money is dangerous. Not because of anything inherent in money, but because of what's inherent in us. It is because of man's wicked heart that we are prone to make an idol out of money, to misuse money, to become overly in love with either money or material things or possessions. And so we have to beware and watch over our heart when it comes to this subject. We saw that the Bible teaches us principles about the right use of money. We are to use money to care for our families. So Paul told Timothy. We are to use money to pay our debts. So the book of Proverbs. We are to use money to save for the future. This is what the wise man does in the book of Proverbs, so that he's prepared when the, the day of trial comes. But we also saw that there is an emphasis in Scripture on giving away some of that which God entrusts to us in order to serve his kingdom, to serve his purposes, and particularly to care for his people. And so we hit hard last time on one of the main reasons why we are commanded to contribute to the needs of the saints. And that reason is this. God has already met our greatest need. When we realize what God has done for us through Jesus, when we realize how we have been saved from hell, the heaven that we've been saved for. The awesome truth that our sins are forgiven. And that we're going to get to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever. That ought to transform us into happy, secure, generous people. And we saw from the example of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians. That when you're living in the reality of the gospel. It shows itself in a generous spirit, an open hand to those in need. Now tonight, I simply want us to note two more reasons that we ought to obey this command to contribute to the needs of the saints. And then I want us to answer the practical question. How do we do this? And how do we do this well? So we need to remember that this command is for all believers uh, this command is from the God who loves you, who knows what's best for you, who is uh, wise. And he's not speaking just to wealthy believers. 
This command is for middle class believers. This command is for the poorest believer on earth. Because God does good things in us when we give of what he has given to us. So if we had nothing but the clothes on our backs, we still ought to be willing to give whatever we can over whatever we have to serve the needs of our brothers and sisters. Like Christ, we are to have an attitude of humility, counting our brothers and our sisters more significant than ourselves. And so you remember Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, Herman, when our priorities are straight, we understand that it is better to be rich in generosity than it is to be rich in money. Uh, Don't think about others in this room and say, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this message tonight. This command is from God for each of us. Because of the great mercy that God has shown us, we all ought to overflow in generosity towards others. We ought to love folks, care for them, contribute to meet their needs. Okay, so what are the other two reasons that we ought to contribute to the needs of the saints? Well, the first is this. Our generosity towards God's people is an act of love towards Him. Remember, Romans 12 began by teaching us that we are to respond to awesome love and marvelous grace that we have received from God by offering up our entire lives to him in spiritual worship. Uh, We are to live lives of worship to God. We ourselves are to be acceptable sacrifices to God. And now all Paul is doing is unpacking what that looks like. Having been saved, having found mercy, what does it look like to live a life of worship to God? And here's one example of what that looks like. You worship him, you praise him, you express your love to him by caring for his children. By showing love to your brother and sister. Parents, doesn't it make you happy? When your children are looking out for each other. Doesn't it delight your heart when you see one of your children helping another? Uh, even sharing or, or sacrificing for the sake of that other child. Maybe, maybe one of your children's in a bit of a mess and you see the other child coming to the rescue. That makes you happy as parents. Well, it also pleases the heart of God when he sees his children caring for one another. Maybe you've thought, what can I give to God to say thank you for saving me? I mean, he saved me from his wrath. He loved me when I was so undeserving. And now he's working all for my eternal good. How can I express my praise? What what do you give the one who owns everything? Would you give the God who made everything? Would you give the God who sustains everything? God has no needs for us to meet. 
God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what in the world can I offer to God just to say thank you for saving me? Answer, God has no needs, but his children do. His people do. And when you serve a child of God, you are serving God himself. Jesus said, as you do it for the least of these, my brothers, you have done it for me. The unity of God with his children, the unity of Christ with his church is so perfect and complete that what you do for God's people, you do for God. What you do for Christ's bride, you do for Christ. Indeed, Christ's unity with his people is so strong That when Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, Saul, you might have thought you were only persecuting these Christians, but in doing so, what you did to them, you were doing to me. Every time Paul put a Christian in prison or had a Christian stoned to death, it was Jesus who was being persecuted. So also, every time we lend a hand to one of Christ's people, every time we serve them in some way, we are offering up service to Jesus himself. So we love God by loving his people. We love God by contributing to the needs of his saints. Well, second, we should contribute to the needs of the saints because of our love for one another. Because of our love for one another. This is just what love does. This is the nature of love. Love takes the needs and burdens of others and puts them on our own shoulders. When love is operating in a body of believers, it shows itself in this way. Your problem is our problem. Your need is our need. What affects one of us affects all of us. So think about your fellow members in this church. Do you truly love them? When Jesus loved you, he took your problems upon himself. He acted in great sacrifice, even going to the cross for you to meet your greatest need. That's what love does. Are we willing to love each other in that way? Are we willing to bear one another's burdens. When you think about the needs of others in this church, do you see them as distinct from you, isolated from you, having nothing to do with you, or do you see the needs of others in this church as your own? Do you feel a holy obligation to help alleviate the difficulties of your brothers and sisters? John Gill makes two great points about this verse. First, have you ever considered that the trials that God brings into the lives of some of our church members aren't just trials for them, they're trials for all of us? That it's we as a church that are being tested. Will we step up? Will we love even now? Will we care when it's hard? Will we respond with generosity and love that springs from our security in Christ? 
Or will our faith be weak and will prove to be stingy and hard-hearted, not trusting Christ to take care of us? John Gill says it this way. It is the will and pleasure of God that some of his dear children should be in difficult circumstances of life and be reduced to want and distress, partly to try their own graces, their faith and trust in God and dependence on him, and partly to try the graces of others, the charity, liberality, and beneficence of those who have of this world's goods. So you see, the needs of others in this church come as a test for all of us from God. Will we trust him now, even when contributing to the needs of our fellow Christians might mean real sacrifice, even real loss for us? Are we willing to forego a nice dinner? Are we willing to forego nicer possessions? Are we for willing to forego a trip we had planned to go on in order to meet the needs of others in this body? Do we trust that Christ is enough for us, enough to be our full and total satisfaction so that we can give sacrificially with a happy heart? The other point that Gill makes is that the word used here for contribute, contribute to the needs of the saints, contribute, it's a form of the word elsewhere used to speak of fellowship. Uh, the word fellowship in the Bible, in the Greek, is the word koinonia. You may have heard that word before, that word before, koinonia. Well, this word contribute is the word koinonuntis. The point is, not that we are just to contribute, but that we are to contribute as an act of fellowship. We tend to use this word fellowship flippantly, right? We, we talk about having a fellowship dinner and the fellowship Paul, and uh, especially growing up in Baptist circles, fellowship just typically meant fried chicken was going to be served, right? That was a fellowship. In the Bible, fellowship is a deep thing, an intimate thing. Uh, fellowship includes serious conversations with one another about important matters. True fellowship includes our hearts being joined together through common experiences of worship and service and living life together. Fellowship happens as we sit at the Lord's table together, sharing in the symbols of the body and the blood. But fellowship also includes this, being aware of one another's needs and actively contributing to help one another. So why should we obey this command? Why should we contribute to one another's needs? First, from last week, because God has met our greatest need. Second, because this is one way we express our love and worship to God himself. And third, because this is part of our love for one another. Now, all of that said, for the remainder of our time, I want us to address the how question. How should we go about giving to meet the needs of one another? I do think there is evidence in Scripture that there are times when we should give directly to those in need around us. And I've seen this over and over again in the past few years in this body. Um, in many ways, uh, this church has not only been generous, but this church has been secretly generous. <laughs> there have been times when um, 
several of you have just slipped an envelope of cash into the hands of one of our church members who needed it. Didn't say anything. That was it. You just kind of put it in their hands. That was all that needed to be said. Numerous occasions over the last several years, people have come to me with an envelope of cash. I prefer you do this to the deacons, by the way. Um, but have come to me with an envelope of cash and said, give this to so-and-so. They don't need to know who it comes from. So I've been the go-between for many of those over the past several years. And I've been humbled as I've seen many of you respond to the immediate needs of some of our church members without wanting any recognition for it, without wanting any, any glory for it. You just saw it as an act of love for that person or that family. And this hasn't always been with, with money either. Um, there have been material needs of all sorts uh, where some of you have seen a need and you've stepped up and you've given of something you own, something you already possessed, and you said, oh, so-and-so could really use that right now. I think this kind of direct giving may be in view in 1 John 3.17, where John says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I have seen God's love abiding in many of you as you have not closed your heart, but you have given of your worldly goods to others, even in this body. But then second, the pattern that we see more often in the New Testament is giving through a collection that is being taken, uh, usually uh, through the local church. Now, this began even in the Gospels. Uh, you may remember that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples, and we were told that he was stealing out of the treasury but you might have wondered, why were the disciples keeping a treasury? And the answer is they, from town to town, collected funds from God's people to give to those in need. And when we come to the book of Acts, we see the church doing the same thing there. In our reading of Galatians on Sunday mornings, just a few weeks ago, we heard Paul say that he was having this conversation with the apostles. And they said, yes, go to the Gentiles. And he said, they only asked that I remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. I think that's Galatians 2.10, somewhere around there. And so uh, this idea of taking a collection, we saw that in 2 Corinthians, right? Paul, from town to town, taking a collection to give to the Christians who were hurting. Listen to Acts 2, beginning in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So, so here in Jerusalem, these Christians were experiencing real fellowship. They saw themselves as one body. No one counted their possessions as off limits. Rather, it was open to those who needed it. And as needs arose in the body, people were willing to even sell possessions, sell land, sell property, sell belongings. And proceeds were used to care for those in the church that were in need. And you can imagine that the needs were great because as people were being baptized in the name of Jesus, it often meant being cut off from family, being cut off from employment, being cut off from all that had sustained their lives up to that point. And so suddenly the church was really looking to one another to help these people stay afloat. But how was this done wisely? 
How did the church in Jerusalem make sure that those who were in true need were being cared for and that no one was taking advantage? How did they make sure these monies were not being wasted or spent improperly? We learn more in Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. So listen to this. Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet... And it was distributed to each as any had need. And so it was the apostles, the first leaders of this church in Jerusalem, who were receiving these funds and then were responsible for making sure that the funds were distributed wisely. But that's a big job, especially for that church where there were thousands of people and perhaps many hundreds, even over a thousand in need. And we find when we get to Acts 6, the apostles said, look, this is not our main calling to be receiving and distributing funds. Our calling is to devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And so we see the first deacons appointed to help in exactly this kind of endeavor. As some of these monies were being used to distribute, to, uh, to distribute food and resources to the widows of the church. Uh, this is why one of the qualifications for the office of deacon. And 1 Timothy 3 is that they not be greedy for dishonest gain. And the same is true for pastors. Uh, Church leaders are not to be lovers of money. And only men who have proven themselves trustworthy and faithful are to serve in Christ's church. And they're to make sure that the monies are being used for true ministry. Now, I have preached on giving very seldom. In my years here at Mount Hermon, we typically only preach on the subject when it comes up in the text. And the reason that we don't go out of our way to preach on giving is because people in our culture already have the impression that all churches are really about is trying to make money. And this idea gets promoted through TV preachers who make lavish promises and urge people to send in their contribution checks so God will bless them. Sometimes we read of these TV preachers who have their own private airplanes or live in their multi-million dollar mansions. And so we need to be very clear. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not exist to make money. And no local church should ever be about the business of trying to fatten its bank accounts. Monies that come into a local church ought to then go through that church into the work of the kingdom. That's the reason people give, is for the monies to be used and invested in the kingdom. Uh, These monies ought to be used to care for the poor, to support the gospel ministry, gospel ministers, and to help spread the good news to places where it is not yet reached. Those in church leadership must be soberly aware that just as every Christian will be held accountable for every penny God entrusted to them. So every church leader will one day give an account for how they stewarded the funds 
that came into their local church. And so with every penny, we ought to be asking, how can we best glorify God and serve his people? I hope it's clear to you that giving is a responsibility of every true child of God. Romans 12, 13 has no exception clause to it. It's written to all of us. Uh, when our church was founded in 1903, we adopted a church covenant and we continue to use that church covenant. We renew that church covenant about twice a year. And the first promises that we make in that church covenant before God and to one another are these. First, that we will exercise a mutual care as members one of another. That's the first promise we make in our covenant. That we will exercise a mutual care as members of one another. To promote the growth of the whole body in Christian knowledge, holiness, and comfort. To the end that we may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And then second, that to promote and secure this object, we will uphold the public worship of God and ordinance of His house. We will hold constant communion with each other there. And that we will cheerfully contribute of our property for the support of the poor and the maintenance of a faithful ministry among us as the Lord prospers us. And so this is the pattern that we are given both in the Bible and in our own church covenant. That we are to be a people who give of what the Lord has given to us through the local church. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't sometimes give to other ministries. Does it mean you shouldn't maybe become a supporter of a particular missionary or a particular cause or adopt a child through something like uh, World Vision or something like that? Of course you may do that. But your giving to the local church ought to go first because that is what is directly commanded in Scripture is that you give in that way. Now, the question that often arises in this connection is, well, how much am I supposed to give? And as soon as you ask it that way, you're already on the wrong track, aren't you? How much am I supposed to give? Uh, the question often comes up in the context of tithing. And what are we to think about this principle of tithing? Does God require that we give 10% of our income to the church? And then people have questions like, well, is that before taxes or after taxes? Is that, you know, before I paid my health insurance or after I paid my health insurance? Where, you know, we're, we're trying to split the, split the numbers and make sure we do it exactly right. Well, Lord willing, we'll address that more fully on some other occasion. But I am going to make a few broad points this evening that I hope will be helpful as we think about this issue. So first, we need to understand that there were multiple tithes in the Old Testament and that Israelites under the Mosaic law gave closer to 20% than 10%. So if you have this picture that in the Old Testament, the Jews gave 10% of their income, that's not quite right. Um, most Christians don't seem to realize this. I think they assume that the Old Testament people gave 10% and then wonder if we should do like they did back then. But that's not true. So here's the breakdown. In the Old Testament under the Old Covenant... Israelites paid a Levitical tithe, which was 10% of their income. Sometimes that included money. More often, it was the fruits of their harvest. They would take 10% of the new grain, 10% of the new young goats and sheep, 
10% of all that had been added to the family during that year, and they would bring it and give it to God in an act of worship. And that Levitical tithe is what God used to sustain the priests, the Levitical families that served in the tabernacle or the temple, who served as uh, priests and provided sacrifices and led the worship of God. But then beyond this, the Israelites also paid what was called a festival tithe. This was 10% of what was left over after the Levitical tithe. And this 10% was to be used in celebration and feasting and enjoyment during God's appointed festivals. So this was money or resources set aside for those special occasions each year When Israel remembered God's great works in the past, maybe you have a budget and you set aside money each month for Christmas, right? You know that that holiday's coming, you know it's going to cost us, you know, we got to give gifts for grandma and grandpa and uncle and cousin and, you know, it's a big deal. And so we got to set aside money all year long to be ready for Christmas. Well, this was, there were certain festivals that Israel were commanded to keep and they were commanded to keep with feasting. It was God's command. You must celebrate. You must take these days and rejoice. You must take these days and remember what I did for you. And so, throughout the year, you're setting apart 10% of what you have after the Levitical tithe to be used for those festivals and for those celebrations. And then, after that, there was the poor tithe. This was a 10% offering that was given every three years. And it was to help each village and each town restock its provisions to care for the poor and the needy. So Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year. Lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so when you put all this together, you find that in Old Testament Israel, they were giving just under 20% of their total income. Well, second, though these tithes were commanded in the Old Testament, it is interesting that there was no prescribed legal penalty nor legal enforcement of tithing. In ancient Israel. In other words, we do not see these tithes treated as a tax in the Old Testament. Just the opposite. God expected his people to give these offerings voluntarily from the heart because they had declared him to be their God and they his people. It was to be something they willed to do. We find commands throughout the Mosaic law for people to open up their hearts and their hands. The Levitical tithe was to be seen as an act of worship. The tithe was to be given to the Lord, and then it was thought that as you gave your tithe to the Lord, it was then the Lord who gave it to the Levites to do their work. But you were bringing it as an act of worship to God, given from the heart. It was to God that your gift was given. In the Old Testament prophets, we often see the people of Israel taken to task, sometimes because they weren't giving like they should, but other times simply because they were not giving from the heart. Jeremiah, for example, 
He says, you're bringing your tithes, you're bringing your offerings, you're making your sacrifices, but your heart is not in it. The Old Testament, there was an emphasis on the heart. Well, then third, when we come to the New Testament, we find that it continues emphasizing that giving should come from the heart. Remember, the Old Testament laws and regulations were given to ancient Israel to help that nation learn how to apply the Ten Commandments to their situation, how to apply the moral law of God to their nation. God was helping Israel learn what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor. And the the rules about tithing, the, the call to give that was part of God teaching them, here's how you love God, here's how you love your neighbor. Well, in the New Testament, the moral principle abides, but the application is different. The moral principle is that we're to continue loving God and continue loving man, and that that should include generous, heartfelt giving. But how much are we to give in the New Testament? How much are we to give in these new covenant days? I think 2 Corinthians 9 is the clearest text in the Bible on this. Verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How much are you to give? As much as you have decided in your heart. And how are you to give? Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not saying with your E or voice, well, I guess it's my Christian duty, so I have to give this money to God. Right? No. You're not to give under compulsion. You're to give willingly. You're to give eagerly. You're to give cheerfully. We're told that those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. And those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. The more you trust God enough to be generous with what you have, the more he will be faithful to bless you. With blessings often way better than money. We don't teach wealth gospel here. We're not saying you give $10 and you'll find $100 in the mail. Often the fruit of your giving is something that will last into eternity. And $100 in the mail won't last into eternity. One last point on this. Um, This is, I think, our fourth point. The new covenant is greater and grander than the old covenant. So we should expect God's new covenant people to be even more generous and not less so than the Old Testament Israelites. In other words, there is something of a sinful spirit behind the question, well, do I have to tithe? Sometimes Christians are trying to find the minimum that they need to give. They're not looking to be generous They just want to see how little they can give and still get by as respectable Christians. But dear friend, the Israelites gave more than 10% and they had far less privileges than you and I have. They didn't even know the name of the coming Messiah. They didn't even know the name Jesus yet. They had no Romans 8. We have the magnificent promises of Romans 8. We recognize more than even the Old Testament saints the depths to which God has gone to save us and to make us his children. 
In light of the gospel of grace and our sweet salvation, it should be our desire to abound in generosity. So here is my advice. If you're a new believer, if you're new to giving, start at 10%. But don't end there. Don't end there. Let that be a conviction for you that you're going to give at least 10% and then start seeking to learn how to do more to be able to be more generous. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Put him to the test on that. See if he is telling you the truth. I think you will find that he is. He will prove himself faithful. And hopefully God will continue to grow you so that you find yourself willing to part with more and more in order to invest in the work of the kingdom and to invest in the lives of others. Our prayer should be that God would make all of our hearts more and more sensitive to the needs of those around us, that he will show us how we can best help so that he will be more greatly glorified in each of our lives and in this church. So here's how we need to close. Uh, Each of us needs to examine our own lives. Don't start by examining how much you've been giving. Start by examining your heart. Are you rejoicing in what God has done for you through Jesus Christ? Are you living in the happy security of the gospel? Are you able to say, I don't know what tomorrow may bring, but I know what the the ultimate tomorrow is bringing. And I know it's all going to turn out well for me because of Jesus. I need not have any real lasting fear in this world. I need not walk around with great anxiety or distress because I know how the story is going to end for me. It's guaranteed through Jesus Christ. Ask that question first. Am I seeking to, to worship the God who has saved me? And then ask yourself, is that coming through in generosity? Do I have an open heart and open hands with what God has entrusted to me? Do we need to repent of having a closed heart to any of our fellow church members? Do we need to repent of being disobedient to this command? Ignoring the needs of others? Not being generous with what God has given to us? If that's where we are, we need to confess that sin. We do need to feel something of the shame of that sin. And then we need to run to Jesus Christ. And remember the fresh forgiveness that we have in him. And show that by a change in our behavior. Do you need to start giving because you haven't been giving? Do you need to increase your giving or become more consistent in your giving? That's something for you to work out between you and God, let's each of us consider how we can obey this command and honor the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. Amen? Okay. Questions?